Welcome to the June 2nd episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is 2 Chronicles 17 and 18 and John chapter 13. Hopefully, you've already spent time in God's Word, so let's get started. Second Chronicles 17. In this chapter, we're introduced to the next king of Judah, and as a side note, realize that the writer of Chronicles was primarily interested in the kings of Judah, the southern nation, not Israel, the northern nation. Whereas the writer of Kings, First and Second Kings, made us feel like we were watching a tennis match as he went back and forth from Israel to Judah as he told us about each of their kings, the writer of Chronicles will keep our attention on the southern nation of Judah. Any reference in this book to a king in Israel is only incidental. So as we're introduced to King Jehoshaphat of Judah, or Jehoshaphat, um, and I don't think he was called Jumping Jehoshaphat, uh, we observe that he is greatly interested in creating a buffer zone. He fortifies cities in the region of Ephraim uh, that his father had captured to protect Judah from any attacks by the northern nation of Israel. And so Ephraim is a little bit north of the region of Judah, and so he is in potentially enemy territory, but it was area and it was cities that were captured by his dad. And so he went on and fortified those cities, uh, essentially, like I said, making a buffer zone for the southern nation of Judah. Regarding his spiritual life, we are impressed with what we read. He is a man that is serious about obeying the Lord. Listen to verses 3 through 6. Now the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the former ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked by his commands, not according to the practices of Israel. So the Lord established the kingdom in his hand. Then all Judah brought him tribute and he had riches and honor and abundance. He took great pride in the Lord's ways, and he again removed the high places and Asherah poles from Judah. But as with any good spiritual leader, Jehoshaphat wasn't merely interested in keeping his resolve to serve the Lord to himself. He wanted the people of Judah to also hear what the Lord required of them and to comply. So we read in verses 7 and 8 that he sent some of his officials and Levites to teach the people. Uh, we read familiar names like Obadiah and Zechariah and we're tempted to say that they were men who wrote the Old Testament prophetical books that bear their names, but we would be wrong. That's not the Obadiah, not the Zechariah. Uh, those were very popular names in the Old Testament. But in verse 9 it says, They taught throughout Judah having the book of the Lord's instruction with them. They went throughout the towns of Judah and taught the people. So because of this, the Lord blessed the nation of Judah under King Jehoshaphat's reign. How so? How did the Lord bless? Listen to verse 10 and 11. The terror of the Lord was on all the kingdoms of the lands that surrounded Judah, so they did not fight against Jehoshaphat. Some of the Philistines also brought gifts and silver as tribute to Jehoshaphat, and the Arabs brought him flocks, 7,700 rams and 7,700 male goats. 
So I want to add a point of clarification here. As we read the books of Kings and Chronicles, we come to the clear conclusion that when the people of God obeyed him, he, the Lord, blessed their nation in very tangible ways. We just read about that. When they disobeyed, he punished Israel in very tangible ways, and we've read about that. The point I want you to consider is that no other nation, including America, has ever had this sort of relationship with the Lord. The Jews were God's chosen people, a people like no other. So while the principle of God's blessings and punishments are generally the same and applied to us today generally, it isn't as clear-cut as it was with God's people. Why do I feel the need to make this point? Because there's a branch of Christianity that believes that America is God's chosen people, just like Israel was. America, American exceptionalism. Now, I love my country, and at present, two of my sons are serving in our nation's military. But the belief that America is like the Old Testament nation of Israel causes people to force the Bible to say things it does not say. Further, it would cause some people to justify the mistreatment and killings of people like the Native Americans, simply because the Israelites of old also wiped out those who lived in the land that they were to inhabit. So we have to be so careful that while we love our country, if we're here in America, and while we pray for our country, our country is not Israel. And as we see how God related to Israel, there are some things that generally apply to us, but it would be erroneous to directly apply what God did to Israel, how he blessed them, specifically with giving them all sorts of protections and victories and everything else, and, and how God through them punished other peoples and you know the people specifically that lived in the land before them and everything else. Um, we have got to be so careful because the nation of Israel was like no other nation. America is a wonderful country, but it is not Israel. And if we believe that America is contemporary Israel, that we are God's chosen people, then there are going to be a lot of things that we get wrong as we try to force our views onto Scripture. So don't do that. Don't do that. The rest of this chapter focuses on King Jehoshaphat's growing military power. Uh, while it resulted from God's blessings upon his obedience, it also creates its own hazards when people come into greater degrees of power. Usually it leads to bad things. Why? Because when things go well for us, we tend to trust the Lord less. We may be tempted to feel as if we don't need to rely upon him as much. And as we become more self-sufficient, greater degrees of sin are waiting at the door, as we'll read in the next chapter. Second Chronicles 18. This chapter begins with a verse that speaks of God's blessings upon Jehoshaphat. Yet, if we aren't careful, our sinful hearts can take God's blessings and then stumble into sin. Just listen. Verse 1. Now Jehoshaphat had riches and honor and abundance, and he made an alliance with Ahab through marriage. <laughs> what? 
The nation of Israel was steeped in idolatry and paganism. King Ahab is the one who was leading that into that. King Jehoshaphat had no business marrying into King Ahab's family. By the way, how would you like to have Jezebel as a mother-in-law? What was Jehoshaphat thinking? Yes, it is often true. When God blesses us, we tend to rely less upon him. We become more self-sufficient, and that leads us to sin. So as much as it may sound counterintuitive, we can pray for God to bless us, just not too much. (laughs) After some years had passed, King Jehoshaphat traveled north to Israel. After all, Ahab's his father-in-law. King Ahab asked if the king would join him in a battle against Ramoth-Gilead. Well, Ramoth-Gilead was located about 25 miles east of the Jordan River. It's not on the Israel side. It's on the east side of the Jordan River and south of the Sea of Galilee. It was originally within the territory of Gad and the territory of the half-tribe of Manasseh, the tribes that wanted to claim land on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Eventually, we're told in the book of Joshua that that Ramoth-Gilead was one of the cities of refuge where someone who had accidentally killed someone could run and find protection. But sometimes, soon after the kingdom of Israel split under Rehoboam, Ramoth-Gilead was captured by the Syrians. So King Ahab of Israel wanted to venture out of his territory and attack a city, probably desiring to create a buffer around his nation. He asked King Jehoshaphat, if he wanted to join him in this battle. Listen to verses 3 and 4. He replied to him. um, It says, uh, Joshphat replied to him, I am as you are, my people as your people. We will be with you in battle. But Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, First, please ask what the Lord's will is. So Ahab was glad to comply. He had a large number of yes-men prophets who affirmed every desire he had. So it was not surprising when those false prophets told Ahab and Jehoshaphat to go against Ramoth-Gilead. They would be victorious. Apparently those false prophets did something, or probably many things, that caused King Jehoshaphat not to take them seriously. Maybe they didn't pray, or they didn't sacrifice, or they didn't refer to the Lord at all. But something made King Jehoshaphat think that their words were worthless. And so we read verse 6. But Jehoshaphat asked, Isn't there a prophet of the Lord here anymore? Let's ask him. Ahab sent for a prophet named Micaiah. But not after telling Jehoshaphat that he despised that man. He did nothing. He said that man, that prophet, did nothing but prophesy bad things about him, about King Ahab. Now, we shouldn't think that someone who speaks for the Lord always has bad news. We shouldn't think that they delight in in always saying bad things to people. Instead, they should generally be characterized by good news and hope. They're a prophet of God, after all. But they aren't afraid to speak the hard truth to people who are in direct disobedience to the Lord. That's why Micaiah, after all, had nothing but bad things always to say about Ahab, because Ahab lived in perpetual disobedience to the Lord. So when the messenger uh, went to get Micaiah, he highly encouraged Micaiah to say only what was consistent with what the false prophets had already said. But I love 
Micaiah's response, verse 13. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, I will say whatever my God says. I love that. When Micaiah showed up, he initially seemed to have made a mockery of the situation. It's possible that sarcasm was dripping from his lips when he said, march up and succeed for they will be handed over to you. I suspect that he knew Ahab never wanted to hear what the Lord had spoken to him, so he made a mockery of the moment. And when King Ahab publicly reprimanded him, Micaiah sobered up and with a serious face said in verse 16, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, They have no master. Let them return home in peace. So Micaiah's words made it clear that Israel would be defeated in battle. They would be scattered. And their master, Ahab, would die. Ahab grew angry. And Micaiah grew even bolder. Micaiah told of a heavenly scene in which the Lord was determining how to bring about Israel's military defeat and Ahab's death. And a demonic lying spirit volunteered and said that he would entice the prophets of Ahab to lie and encourage him, their king, to go into battle. Well, this heavenly scene describes God's sovereignty. It also invites us into how God never initiates evil, but periodically allows it to accomplish his divine purposes. Well, you could imagine that the false prophets became incensed when they heard Micaiah say that a lying demonic spirit had influenced them. One of the false prophets came up and hit Micaiah on the cheek. Further, King Ahab ordered that Micaiah be kept in confinement and on meager rations. And this points out, sometimes, that when we obey the Lord and speak truth to a culture that doesn't obey the Lord nor desires truth, we will suffer the consequences. Sometimes the most unsafe place to be is right in the middle of the will of God. Yet our motivation should never be to have a life of ease and safety. Instead, while we desire safety, an even more powerful motivation is that we want to do what is pleasing to the Lord. Why King Jehoshaphat went off to battle after hearing Micaiah's prophecy of Israel's defeat and Ahab's death is beyond us. He wanted to hear from the Lord. And yet, when the Lord spoke through his man, Jehoshaphat didn't take it seriously. Well, the battle played out just as Micaiah had said. The Arameans routed the Israelite army. But what about King Ahab? Micaiah said that he would die in the battle. Well, God used an unnamed man and an unaimed arrow to accomplish the deed. Listen to verses 33 and 34. But a man drew his bow without taking special aim and struck the king of Israel through the joints of his armor. So he said to the charioteer, Turn around and take me out of the battle, for I am badly wounded. The battle raged throughout that day, and the king of Israel propped himself up in his chariot, facing the Arameans until evening. And then he died at sunset. 
Friend, our God reigns sovereignly in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, and nothing can stop him from doing what he desires to do. When he, deserves, when he determines that a massive army intent on killing Elijah will not succeed, then it won't. But if he determines that King Ahab will die in a battle, then nothing anyone does can stop the inevitable. If Christians truly believed in this principle that nothing can happen except what God has willed to happen or allows to happen, then all people would be equally brave. John chapter 13. This chapter begins with some powerful words. The Passover festival is only a few days away, and Jesus knew that the time of his sacrificial death had come. He would die as the final and ultimate Passover lamb, just like the death of the lamb at the time of the Israelite exodus. Jesus' death would provide the blood which protected those who hid behind it. God's judgment and wrath were not theirs to experience because he said, When I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's why Jesus died during the time of the Passover. John chapter 13 verse 1 says this, Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from his, this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Well, the events in John 13 occurred in the upper room. And this was the place where Jesus observed the Passover with his disciples and then went to the Garden of Gethsemane where Judas betrayed him. While he was in his second, uh, this second story room, he did something. Jesus did something that created such an emotional response that his disciples never forgot it. He washed their feet. Listen to verses 4 and 5. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. Washing feet was a job for only the most menial of slaves. Jews in the first century wore sandals with nothing else on their feet. No, they did not wear socks with their sandals. So they walked outside, their feet would get dirty and stink, and even worse, if they weren't paying attention, they might even step into what an animal had left behind. They couldn't simply walk into someone's house like that, so many households would have a slave who would wash people's feet as they entered. When we think about the house they were presently in, the, the second-story room that Jesus and his disciples are in, we realize that observing the Passover in that location was a last-minute decision. At least, it appeared to be a last-minute decision. Jesus, that morning, had sent Peter and John into town to prepare for the rest of them to show up later that afternoon and observe the Passover. So it's quite possible that no one took the initiative to wash anyone's feet. And the disciples were so consumed with self-exaltation that they weren't going to wash each other's feet. So it's quite possible that no one had washed anyone's feet in that upper room. They all had stinky, dirty feet. Well, that's when Jesus saw an opportunity for a teaching moment. 
In one powerful act, he illustrated what his ministry had been about and what his disciples were to do after he was gone. It wasn't about proud self-exaltation. It was all about humble service. Well, Peter was horribly offended that Jesus was doing this, that Jesus was washing his the, washing disciples' feet. Peter understood his role as a willing servant to Jesus, but when a master, someone who was in an exalted position, humbled himself to the point of washing feet, Jesus, uh, Peter wasn't at all pleased with that kind of servant leadership. That's why Peter resisted Jesus' desire to wash his feet and then made a joke out of it. Listen to verses 6-9. through nine. He, Jesus, came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. You'll never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but <laughs> what about my hands and my head? He was joking. He was making light of a tense situation. Jesus responded to Peter's words with the spiritual principle that his act of foot washing was demonstrating. Someone who has taken a bath is clean, or spiritually speaking, is saved. But even people who are saved, who are spiritually clean, get their feet dirty with sin that Jesus needs to wash off. And if they aren't willing to repent and let him cleanse them of sin, then they demonstrate that they really don't belong to him like, like Judas. In verses 10 and 11, Jesus says, One, um, one who is, has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. When Jesus finished washing their feet, he put his outer clothing back on, reclined at the table, and oversaw a debriefing session. Listen to verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I've done for you? Then... Jesus proceeded to give a second meaning to what he had done. The first meaning of foot washing was to show that saved people who are spiritually clean need to repent of sin daily and receive Jesus' cleansing forgiveness. Our salvation is not in question. It's just the daily spiritual cleanup that needs to happen in order to maintain a meaningful relationship with the Lord. That's what the foot washing symbolized. But Jesus unpacked the second meaning of foot washing as he debriefed his disciples. It was a picture of how their master had humbled himself to serve them. By doing this, he set an example for them. Spiritual leadership is not about power, is not about prestige, it's not about perks and all the rest. Instead, it's about greater opportunities to serve. Listen to verses 13 through 15. Jesus said, You call me teacher and Lord, and you're speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should also do just as I have done for you. 
So Jesus was teaching and equipping his disciples right up to the point of his betrayal, mock trial, and crucifixion. And this spiritual leadership um, was all about how it is that they were to serve. It always operates for the benefit and blessings of those who follow, not those who lead. That's spiritual leadership. Of course, there will be blessings for the leader. God will reward spiritual leadership, and the people who follow periodically feel compelled to express their gratitude to good leaders. But the leader doesn't lead because of what he will get out of it. He or she leads because they love the Lord. They care about people and want to do the right thing. When we read verses 21 through 30, we hear that Jesus said about his betrayal. We hear what Jesus said about his betrayal and about Judas. I find it interesting that as Jesus warned about a betrayer, everyone wondered who it was. In John chapter 13, verses 21 and 22, it says this, When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. I'm telling you, it's insightful to realize that that the disciples didn't all immediately point to Judas. None of them said, I know who it is, Jesus. It's Judas. He's a fraud. They didn't say that. Instead, we're told by another gospel writer that the disciples doubted themselves before they ever would have doubted Judas. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 22, it says, Deeply concerned, each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. Friend, this is why the Lord doesn't focus so much on what we appear to be. Instead, he focuses on our hearts and what it testifies to what we actually are. Judas had them all fooled. In verses 23 through 25, it tells us that Jesus motioned, that Peter motioned to John to ask Jesus who it was. Who is it that's going to betray him? And so John asked Jesus. Verse 26, Jesus replied, He's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. So this is incredibly significant. When a host gave a morsel of bread to someone else at the table, it was a sign of friendship. So when Jesus gave the morsel of bread to Judas, Jesus was extending one final gesture of friendship to Judas. God had determined that Jesus would be betrayed and killed, but Judas was also making his own choices. So Jesus continued to reach out to him. We're told in verse 27 that Satan entered Judas as he left to betray Jesus. This can mean nothing other than that Judas was now demon-possessed, or even more literally, Satan-possessed. As Judas left, the clock was now ticking. It was only a matter of time before Judas would find Jesus and turn him over to be crucified. But in the seriousness of this moment, Jesus gave quote, a new command, unquote. It wasn't new in that Jesus had never said it before. Instead, it was new in that Jesus would give it a deeper, richer meaning. So listen to verses 34 and 35. Jesus said, I give you a new command. Love one another. 
Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What a powerful moment to say these words. Jesus had just extended a loving friendship to Judas, even as he knew that Judas was only hours away from betraying him. Even though the rest of the disciples didn't know this, Jesus had just demonstrated an incredible act of love towards someone who was prepared to kill him. So certainly they could love each other. Besides, in sacrificially caring for each other, their lives would point people to Jesus. Well then, after a few more words, Peter spoke up and boldly said that he would lay down his life for Jesus. Peter's motives appear to be good, but it seems that he was full of self-reliance. I suspect that Peter was expecting Jesus to express his gratitude for such loyalty. Peter may have thought that his intentions would be celebrated by Jesus and provided as an example for the other disciples to follow. But when Jesus said his next words... I think you could have blown Peter over with a feather. Verse 38, Jesus replied, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I think we are much more like Peter than we may realize. We have good intentions, but we often rely on our own strength rather than humbly acknowledging that we desperately need you. Forgive us for our pride, Lord. Help us realize how much we need you and help us to live consciously with heartfelt confidence in what you can do through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. If looking over the script for this podcast would be beneficial to you, hop on over to my website at mattsmusings.net. I'll provide a link in this episode's show notes for my website. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you tomorrow.